So, as we mentioned, uh, Psalm 32 is our scripture reading and our text tonight. So if you want to turn there. About a year ago, at the end of 2020, uh, we shared together in Psalm 130, which is a psalm of repentance written by David. Well, Psalm 32 is also a psalm of repentance written by David. I didn't plan that to be the case. I love the psalms, and as I prayed about tonight, it seemed right to me, and hopefully it seems right to the Holy Spirit, and I just pray you'll be blessed as we get into his word together. So, as we go through this psalm, if there's anything going on in your life in the area of sin that needs to be addressed, or should those times come in the future, no doubt, may you hear the Lord's passionate mercy for you as expressed through David. In these 11 verses, we find the remedy for a guilty conscience, the cure for a dried up spiritual life. Also through repentance, we see an abundant provision of God's protection, his preservation, and his deliverance. David also gives us a glimpse into the Lord's heart of mercy for us, as well as a path back to joy if we've been beaten down through any length of time at all in the entanglement with sin. Doesn't that sound great? Let's do this. So we're going to begin in verse 1 and 2. Follow along as we read. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And while we don't know for sure if this was written after David's great fall with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, uh, many do. And one of the reasons, among others, that we can arrive there are these words transgression and sin in verse 1. These speak of sinful acts of disobedience to God's law and acts of moral failure and wickedness. So we know at the very least, David is dealing or sharing with us his experience of repentance from great wickedness on his part. And in verse 1, he finds great blessing in having already experienced forgiveness. Now, the word blessed, it means happy, uh, but interestingly, it's plural here. And I like what Spurgeon says about this, and he helps us out a bit. Oh, the blessedness is, the double joys, the bundles of happiness, the mountains of delight to the one whose sins are forgiven. And so David begins this psalm by reflecting on the amazing forgiveness of God, having forgiven him great wickedness, noting the blessednesses, the double joys, the bundles of happiness of being forgiven of his deliberate acts of disobedience and his moral failures. We can hear in David's words the sense of relief, of great joy, knowing that even though he was a wicked man, the Lord was more loving still. I'm sure everyone here can relate to uh, having moral failures, yes? How about deliberate acts of sin? Yeah. So, are you able to take in the reality that God has totally forgiven you? By that I mean not just believe it to be true as a doctrinal position, but have you come to a place where you've experienced the immense joy that comes from knowing God's forgiveness? If you struggle with truly knowing and accepting his forgiveness and his mercy towards you, I trust as we go through this psalm that he would set your heart free to experience the blessed happiness and the double joys of knowing that you have a loving Lord who's completely forgiven you. Now, regardless of where you are in that understanding tonight, can you remember times in your life when you've sensed that blessedness? you sense the joy of being forgiven. Maybe you can go back to the day you got saved. Anyone remember that day? I remember the tremendous weight lifted off my shoulders when Jesus saved me. And I went from a daily drug user to nothing the next day. And the joy was so amazing. 
For the first time in my life, I knew that all of my sin was forgiven. On that day, I certainly sensed the double joys of forgiven sin. Now, as you think back to your conversion or just that first time you experienced this joy, do you still have that blessed peace of mind and the blessed peace of heart all these years after your conversion? Do you walk in the awareness that your sins are forgiven? If you rarely or maybe even never experienced this joy as a believer, there are at least two possibilities here. The enemy has either filled you with guilt and shame over forgiven sin and or there's sin that you've not repented of. Either way, know this, the Lord's desire, what God wants for you, is that you experience the double joys of having a heart that knows that your sin is forgiven. We'll talk more about that later as we get into the psalm. For now, blessed or how abundantly happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then verse two, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, Blessed is the same word in verse 2, it's also plural, and impute means to charge or to ascribe. So, how doubly blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not charge or ascribe iniquity. Iniquity being, again, acts of wickedness. Do you know who actually does charge you? The devil. According to Revelation 12, 10, he's the accuser of the brethren. But our God, on the other hand, demonstrates a love that does not charge sin to our account. You remember the, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Her accusers were correct. She was guilty of adultery. They even used scripture to make their point that she should be stoned. But after Jesus puts her accusers in their place and they've all left, he asks, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. To which Jesus replied, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus did not charge her sin against her. Oh, her accusers had, and likely her conscience and the enemy as well, but the Lord forgave her. He did not charge her sin to her account. So David, knowing by his own experience that when we sin, there will be those who condemn us, both in the spiritual and in the natural realm. So he tells us something we really need to know. When the Lord forgives you, he does not impute. He does not charge or ascribe your sin to you. Your sin has fallen on Jesus Isaiah 53, 6, speaking of the coming Messiah, says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can you receive that tonight? That if you're born again, all of your sin has been laid on Jesus. Verse 2 again, Oh, how blessed, how the double joys of the one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. Now, deceit there, that's the action or practice of deceiving someone, concealing or misrepresenting truth. Now, remember, David, while he's giving us instruction here, is also referring to himself. Verse 3 makes that clear. It says, uh, when I kept silent. Uh, so David was purposely, purposefully uh, concealing truth about his sin, uh, as we might do at times. And so, why do we conceal sin? Probably several reasons, but just a couple. Uh, we want to keep doing it, right? Or we want to protect our reputation. We want, to have, we want to have it both ways. But there's no joy in that. So when we're concealing sin, when we're walking in deception, with each passing day, we feel more and more distant from the Lord and his people, don't we? Eventually, it begins to take a toll on our bodies, which we'll see happen to David here in a little bit. But for now, 
We know that he lived in deceit for months, maybe even a year or so, um, unrepentant of not only murder and adultery, but he also lived uh, many months in abusive power, among other things, covetousness and who knows what else. So as an application, if you ever come to that place where this is you, or very possibly this is you tonight, a place where you allow yourself to live in sin that has taken you or eventually will take you to places you don't want to go. I would encourage you to remember there is still blessedness awaiting you when you repent, when you choose to no longer walk in deception. Again, David, who had been there and had done some extremely wicked things, was able to say, oh, how happy, how doubly blessed is the person who's not living in deceit. He found the freedom of confessing and openly admitting his sin and receiving forgiveness. So moving on to verse 3, he says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. So maybe this is another way really of describing deceit, keeping silent. In any case, uh, maybe you've had times in your life when you've walked in sin for a season and your friends would ask you how you're doing. You know, you'd put on, it's all good, right? That one famous scripture, it's all good. You know, then you head home from church and think, wow, I got through that one, right? If you've done that, you're in good company because the man of whom God said was after his own heart did the same thing. He kept silent. So what happens to us as believers when we keep silent about our sin? Well, for one, it takes a toll on us physically. Listen to how David describes this again in verse 3. He says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. This isn't the first time that David expressed this uh, similar result of living in sin. Listen to his words from Psalm 31. This is verses 9 and 10. He says in relation to the fruit of his sin, have mercy on me, O Lord, for I'm in trouble My eye wastes away with grief, yes, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Similar to what he says here in Psalm 32, my bones grew old. And this speaks of our strength failing. You know, he was exhausted. And most believe at this time David was about 50, but, you know, he's exhausted not because he's 50, he's exhausted because he's in sin. Living in sin is so exhausting, particularly if you're a believer. Have you ever felt weak or exhausted because of your sin? Come on, be honest. You know what? Have you ever felt exhausted because of your sin? Yeah, all right, okay. The rest of you are liars. Okay, um, of course you have, right? Uh, You know, maybe as you've walked in willful disobedience or if you've ever had a time of backsliding in your life, you've had that sense of just being tired. The awareness of the sin that you're harboring over time begins to take a toll on your strength and you become overwhelmed. I remember in the first year or two of coming to Christ, I walked away from the Lord for a little bit. Um, I was pretty miserable. I had sleepless nights and I, I remember having at the same time extreme anxiety yet being extremely exhausted. You know, it's like two personalities. You know, I was looking to my sin instead of to the Lord. And that time was spent, as David says here, in grief. I had no strength. I had become a slave to my sin, and my sin was a relentless taskmaster. And verse 3 says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. Then in verse 4, David describes another effect of concealing sin. He says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. So because of David living in this condition, he felt as if God's hand was pressing down on him. Have you ever had that sense? That God's hand is literally just pressing down on you? 
By that, I don't mean condemnation or as if God would belittle you or shame you. It's not what the Lord does. That's not the heavy hand of the Lord. It's the enemy. Here's what I do mean. When our children were young, Jennifer, and uh, they rebelled or disobeyed, because we love them, we discipline them. They would feel the hand of mom and dad heavy upon them, so to speak, sometimes heavier than others, depending on the circumstances. Well, they were in that state of rebellion, they would feel the grief of discipline. In those times of discipline, they sensed what felt very uncomfortable, and the discomfort came from our hand, and they didn't like it. This is the same thing that happens between us and the Lord when we're in sin. We feel his hand of discipline, and it's grievous. Hebrews 12, 11 says, now no chastening seems joyful, the present, but grievous. Now interestingly, that word grievous means a sad heaviness. And why does the Lord apply the heavy hand? The rest of verse 11 in chapter 12 of Hebrews. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but grievous, nevertheless, afterwards. After a time of enduring our discipline, afterward, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So be encouraged that if or when you slide back into sin, to not despise the heavy hand of the Lord. God so loves you that the fruit of that loving discipline, the goal and the fruit of his heavy hand will be peace. And listen, he loves you so much that the hand with which he'll wipe away every tear is also the loving hand with which he disciplines you. Both actions are expressions of his love for you. Both discipline and comfort come from the loving heart and hand of God. So verse three and four again. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Vitality, it, it, the word means juice or sap, as in a tree. It speaks of vigor and strength. And David says that his concealed sin caused his vigor, his strength to become like the drought of summer. He was dried up. Here in Florida, we get a lot of rain in the summer. Our dry periods are more prevalent in the winter, and we can see that dryness on our lawns and gardens. Once beautiful, colorful, thriving plants become brown and crispy. This is a picture of sorts of having our vitality turned in the drought of summer. When we persist in sin after day after day of conviction, all strength and vigor and certainly at least our spiritual and mental strength seem to waste away, don't they? The person who once walked with the Lord, who once had a reputation for joy, who had a welcoming smile, when lived, having lived in sin, has become dry and cold. And this is where David had arrived. And this is where we can be at times as well. Okay, honesty again. Have you ever felt dryness of soul from your sin? All right, so we've repented of lying already. Okay, all right, all right. I'm guessing that we all have, but before we look at how David dealt with those consequences of his sins, I just want to draw your attention to something by way of a question. Do you think David gave much thought to the consequences of these actions before he did them? What do you think? Probably not, probably not. But we're instructed in, script, instructed in Scripture, tongue twister, to think about the consequences of sin as a means of deterrent. Now, in my early years with the Lord, I used to believe that I should love Jesus so much that no one would ever have to warn me about sin. I really believed that, okay? It's not true, all right? And we know it's not true because God's Word is filled with warnings to not sin based on 
the consequences of it, right, as an encouragement not to sin. Uh, There's one such warning in Proverbs 7. You don't have to turn there. Uh, The words I'm going to read, these come after Solomon describes a woman tempting a man to commit adultery with her. Solomon is attempting to get his kids to think about the consequences of committing sin that he himself had committed. And he writes in Proverbs 7, beginning in 21, with her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went after her as an axe to the, excuse me, an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of stocks, till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, check this out, he did not know it would cost his life. That's pretty heavy in consequence area, right? It gets better. Well, depending on how you look at it. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. That's a pretty intense warning, isn't it? Yes, we should consider the consequences of sin before we take the plunge. I wonder if we don't always think about the consequences because we think we won't get caught. Or maybe we just don't believe there are going to be any consequences. Or we think, you know, I've dealt with this before. It's not that bad. I can deal with it. Whatever the case. Just a thought on that. Sin always has consequences. Always. You guys know that. It always has consequences. We just saw in chapter three, 3 and 4, excuse me, verses 3 and 4 of our text, some of those consequences, and we just read some of them in Proverbs here. So may the Lord help you. May the Lord help me to be those who take the warnings of Scripture for what they are, God's loving exhortations to not sin. Well, thankfully, no matter where we've been or what we've done, if we have breath, there's always a way back home. And David directs us down that road in verse 5. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. So David acknowledged his sin, it says, to the Lord. You know, it's, it's one thing to go around and kind of say to yourself, I know, I know, I'm blowing it, man, I'm such a jerk, Lord, help me. When I was backsliding, that's what I did. I acknowledged my sin to me, as if that gave me some type of feeling of penance, you know, like I felt good about, well, I, at least I know I'm a jerk, right? But that's just, that's fruitless, right? So what the Lord wants for us is that we would acknowledge our sin to Him. Until we reach that point, we really haven't taken the first step in repentance. We must come to terms with God, His terms, by acknowledging to Him that we've sinned. And now that David's done that, he's no longer concealing his sin, that's mentioned in verse 2 there. He's no longer walking in deceit. But now, he's doing what 1 John 1.9 tells us to do. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I would encourage you to lay it out there when you're at that place. Lord, I've sinned. Lord, I come back to you. I repent. Lord, forgive me. When we do that, when we repent, notice the wonderful benefit in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, iniquity is immoral behavior or wickedness, and it really refers to your guiltiness, if that's a word. And it's so wonderful. The Lord forgives your guilt. He doesn't make excuses for your guilt. You're guilty, but he forgives your guilt. So if if you're someone who deals with lots of guilt from your past sins, 
Know that you can actually be free from that sense of guilt when you repent and receive his mercy. You ever had that problem? You think of something you did 40 years ago? Anybody? You telling the truth again tonight? Okay, very good. Yeah, it's crazy. It's just the enemy, all right? We have, we have no connection to that sin. It's been forgiven, but the enemy uses it against us. Listen to what Spurgeon says about this part of the verse. It really speaks to the power of mercy and forgiven sin. He says, and I quote, the virus of sin's guilt was put away, and that at once, as soon as the acknowledgement was made, God's pardons are deep and thorough. The knife of mercy cuts at the roots of the ill weed of sin. Isn't that awesome? I'm going to read that again. The virus of sin's guilt was put away, And that at once, as soon as the acknowledgement was made, God's pardons are deep and thorough. The knife of mercy cuts at the roots of the ill weed of sin. God is so merciful, is he not? His word says, mercy triumphs over judgment, James 2.13. His mercy pursues you all the days of your life, Psalm 23.6. Psalm 147.11 says that we bring him pleasure when we place our hope in his mercy. He is rich in mercy, Ephesians 3, 4. He crowns us with mercy, Psalm 103, 4. His mercies never end and they're new every morning, Lamentations 3, 22. Your Father wants you to live in the blessedness of his mercy and forgiveness, totally free of the guilt associated with your sin. He has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103, 12. He's taken your sin, he's removed it from you, he's placed it on Jesus on the cross, and he in turn has given you Christ's righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And here's one thing, or at least one more thing, that the enemy of your soul doesn't want you to know, and this is regarding mercy. Micah 7, 18 says that God delights to show mercy. Showing mercy to you is not a bother to God. You don't bug him when you pursue his mercy. He loves to show you mercy. Will you delight the heart of God by receiving his mercy? You don't have to do anything to earn it. You know, you you, you can't, right? Just receive it and delight the Lord's heart. Psalm 147, 11 again, which we referenced a few seconds ago, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. That is amazing to me. When we've sinned, When we've disobeyed the Lord, rather than him requiring some sort of penance or work to try to prove that we're worthy, he instead receives pleasure when we simply fall on his mercy. So question, how is it that God experiences pleasure when we hope in his mercy? Well, I have a story that I've shared a few times in different contexts, and it just fits really well here, so I'm going to share it again. When one of our boys was not quite a teenager, we discovered that he had been visiting some inappropriate websites. And so I had him come upstairs and um, sat him down and said, son, um, I, I need to talk with you about something, but I want you to know that I love you so much and nothing you ever do will ever separate you from my love. Now, I was on the computer today and that was the end of the conversation. He lunged to me and he gripped me and just strangled me and he wept and wept and we ended up rocking together as we both cried. And he would say, I'm so terrible. I said, no, I love you, it's okay. What happened at that moment was he shed tears of repentance, hoping in the mercy of his father, while I shed tears of joy over his repentance. And I found great pleasure in the fact that my son trusted in my mercy. He trusted in my love. So now when I read Psalm 147, 11, I get it. The Lord takes pleasure in me. He takes pleasure in you when you just fall in his mercy. 
Amen? So the next time you stumble or you just feel the weight of temptation, don't allow the enemy to condemn you. Rather, turn to the Lord's mercy towards you and so bring him pleasure. Tell him, Lord, I just, that's all I got, Lord. I just hope in your mercy. All I got is your mercy. I have nothing else to bring. And just rest in his loving arms. Verse six. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. So for this cause, for what cause? Because God has had mercy on you. He's removed your guilt. Uh, For this cause, pray to him. And notice that the godly who pray to him are not those who are perfect and sinless. In the context of the psalm, this godly guy is someone who's sinned. He's lived in sin for a while, kept silent about his sin. He's been deceptive about his sin, but he's godly. So he gets up. He repents. Proverbs 24, 16 says, For a righteous person falls seven times and rises again. Those who are godly pray to him. We pray to the one who's forgiven even the guilt of our sin. That's why David begins this song with, oh, how blessed, how happy, how doubly blessed is the person whose sin is forgiven. That person, although he's committed great sin, can be and is, and is counted worthy. He's counted godly. So praise the Lord for his great forgiveness. In a quick footnote before we continue, in Ephesians 4, we're told to forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Well, in that the Lord has released you from the guilt and shame of your sin, is there anyone for whom you're harboring unforgiveness tonight? Is there anyone you shame with guilt or silence or judgment for a wrong toward you and maybe they've repented of that wrong? If so, may you be encouraged tonight to forgive them the same way that God in Christ has forgiven you, not holding your sin against you, setting you free, setting them free from the guilt and shame that maybe we're having a little bit too much fun hanging on to. Well, back to our text. We'll read verse 6 and eight to, uh, six to 8 together. For this cause, uh, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. So this is David in part giving perspective of the fruit of walking in repentance as opposed to staying in his sin. In his sin, verse four, uh, speaks of the heavy hand of God, which we discussed. But now in repentance, he finds the restoration, the protection of God, the shelter of God, verse seven. While in his sin, he's also gone from groaning all the day long in verse three to through repentance being surrounded with songs of deliverance, also verse seven. Note also, In verses six and seven, David describing more fruit of being right with God. It says, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Now, a flood of great waters in verse six, it's figurative, it's troubles. And verse seven goes a little further to actually mention trouble. So at first glance, this may appear to be a promise that nothing bad ever happens to those who are walking with God, but... We know that's not true, right? Uh, The entirety of Scripture and, of course, our own lives. Uh, Yet, uh, what we're going to do then, we're going to look at two examples in Scripture that I believe they give us some perspective on this that we might be blessed by this promise. We'll start with Jonah. Jonah walked for a season away from the call of God, right? 
he walked in complete rebellion uh, to God's command to go to the Ninevites with a word from the Lord that the Ninevites might repent. And as a result of disobeying that call, he experienced trouble. He experienced great trouble. Coincidentally, some of his troubles came in the form of a flood of great waters, um, you know, troubles that, of course, just happened to be involving water. In any case, Jonah reaped what he had sowed in regard to his disobedience, and trouble, great trouble was the result. Trouble not only came near him, like our text says, but it engulfed him. Now, take Joseph on the other hand. He experienced great trouble. Uh, and really, compared to Jonah, although I don't know which one I'd choose here, belly of a well, a great fish. In any case, compared to Jonah, he had a handful of days of discomfort. Joseph found himself in years of overwhelming trial and suffering, not just false imprisonment, the betrayal of his brothers and slavery, but the unimaginable unimaginable heartache of sudden separation from his father, who he likely believed he'd never see again. Now think about this. He did experience trouble. However, there's a sense in which the trouble or the flood of great waters that Joseph experienced did not come near him, as our text tonight says. The word for near in verse 6, it means, among other things, to touch, to reach, and to destroy. And it's clear that while Joseph was pummeled with a flood of great waters, that trial did not destroy him, right? And really, we could say, as verse 7 of our text says, that he made the Lord his hiding place. How did he do that? Well, one way we're told, he kept his eye on the Lord. He kept his eyes on the Lord's perspective. We know that by what he said to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20. He said, but as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as it is this day. We see in those words that while he was surrounded by trial, a flood of great water, so to speak, his perspective kept him from being swallowed up by it. Now hold that perspective of Joseph in your mind for just a moment. Look at verse 7 again. David says, you shall preserve me from trouble. Now preserve means to guard, to maintain, and to protect. It's not that believers are by any means without troubles, but rather in our trouble, we are guarded and we're protected. God had a purpose for Joseph, and God preserved him through much trial that could have destroyed him, but he was protected. And this is important. Joseph was preserved unto the place that God had called him to be. And so David in this psalm is seeing himself as having gone from a place of great heaviness, great guilt, as he bore the weight and the shame of his sin, but after repenting, he can declare that he's back under the protection of God, even when great troubles come. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near me. The Lord is my hiding place. He preserves me from trouble. And then he adds, you shall surround me with songs of deliverance. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas were put in prison. They were beaten with rods. So they're experiencing great pain and suffering. But around midnight, it says that they were singing hymns. They were surrounded with songs of deliverance. And I want to encourage you, when you're beat up by the world, to offer praise to the Lord. When you're in a place of great pain, offer the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him, Jesus. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And I would suggest to you that if you will be one who offers the sacrifice of praise to the Lord in your struggles, you will also be one who experiences your Lord breaking chains and moving on your behalf. Verse eight and nine together. 
The Lord says to David, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. So verse 8 and 9 give us two different ways we can choose to be led. We can be like a horse and a mule that need a bit and bridle, that must be pulled and tugged along, or we can be those who are guided by his eye, walking in obedience to the Lord, sensitive to just a look from him, a nudge from his word saying, this is the way, walk in it, Isaiah 30, 21. The Lord desires this kind of communication and instruction with us that where there's an intimacy in his guidance. So verse 9 again, do not be like the horse, do not be like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they won't come near you. And this speaks to us about what our relationship with God is like when we're in willful sin as well. We, we tend to not come near the Lord. We avoid his word. We avoid fellowship. We don't answer the cell phone when we see a caller ID of a brother who we know is going to ask how we're doing. In that place of willful sin, we tend to not draw near, but even worse, we seek to hide from the Lord. It's Adam and Eve did that same thing. After they sinned, they hid themselves from the Lord. They wouldn't come near him. Listen to these very sad words of Genesis 3, 8 to 10. And Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And isn't that the way we often feel when we sin? We become ashamed to approach our loving Lord. We won't go near him. So while he doesn't call us, horses or mules. He says, don't be like them. I mean, you could say in a sense that when we get into sin, we kind of separate ourselves when we're doing that, separating ourselves from him. Often he kind of has to use the bit and the bridle of discipline to draw us back to him, to draw us near again, because that's where he wants us. He wants us near to him. The enemy tells us that the Lord is repulsed by us when we sin, and he heaps condemnation on us in an attempt to keep us from the Lord. But in James 4, two believers James says to sinners, to the proud, to the double-minded Christian, not to hide yourself from the Lord, but rather in repentance, in mourning over your sin, James says, draw near to the Lord and he'll draw near to you. Please be encouraged that if you're in sin in one way or another tonight, or if you find yourself there in the future, the Lord wants to be near to you. So draw near to him. He wants to instruct you and teach you in the way you should go He wants you in that place of intimacy where he's guiding you with his eye. Verse 10. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Some might say that the wicked here are believers who, or excuse me, uh, you know, do wicked things. I I don't think so. Uh, I believe David is letting us know that sorrow is the fate of the wicked, the unsaved, and mercy is for those who trust the Lord. Either way, We want to be those who trust the Lord, who hope in his mercy, right? And notice that his mercy surrounds us. So just for some perspective on that, to to be surrounded by something is to see it and to experience it from every possible perspective. No matter which way you turn, no matter which way you look, no matter which way you walk, no matter which way you run, no matter which way you fall, usually down. Um, As God's dearly loved child, there is no place, there's no direction you can go without running through or running into the mercy of God because David says it surrounds you. 
And as we mentioned earlier, Psalm 23, 6 says that that mercy pursues you. So it's not just there to meet you face to face wherever you go, but it's constantly chasing after you and following you passionately wherever you go. Isn't that wonderful? It's good, good stuff. Verse 11, therefore, because of that, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so notice how David is ending the psalm right where he started. In verse one, Oh, how blessed is the person whose sin is forgiven. And in verse 11, be glad and rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, you upright in heart. David's experience of sin and repentance has as bookends the blessedness of being forgiven and made righteous, a child of God. And how can we not rejoice knowing that our God surrounds us and pursues us with his mercy, his great loving kindness? One last thought as the worship team comes up. Each one of you who has received Christ tonight, you're already righteous, you're already forgiven. So I want to encourage you to take note of how blessed you are in your forgiveness. Sounds kind of simplistic, but you know, that's what this psalm is. It's David taking note, taking thought of how blessed he is that God has forgiven his wickedness. Take note of the depth of God's great passion for you. And if you're in sin tonight, repent. And do what you need to do to walk in repentance, to be free of the chains that bound you. If you need a brother or sister to come alongside, there are many people here who would be so blessed to walk with you that you might experience the double joys of not just knowing that your sin is forgiven, but that you're walking free of the chains of concealed sin. Amen? Lord, that's where we want to be. We want to walk free of the guilt, the shame of our sin. So Lord, I, I do pray for anyone here tonight who has given into sin, has become a slave to sin in one way or another. Lord, can tonight just be the night you set them free? Help them, Lord, to trust in your mercy, to fall on your mercy, to know your great love. Just be restored to that place where you're guiding them with your eye, leading them by your love. Lord, thank you for your great mercy. Thank you that your mercy surrounds us. Thank you that you've loved us as a father and forgiven all our sin. Lord, we love you. Praise you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.